Well, uh, once again, welcome to City Spring. We are glad you are here with us today, and uh, it's been fun. Uh, there's been a few faces. I even saw Eric slide in this morning. People I haven't seen in a little while, people who've been out of town or moved away or whatever, visiting, and uh, it's kind of a, a, it's always fun to see some people come cruising through, and um, so we're glad you're here with us today. Um, go ahead and grab your Bible, if you will. We're going a little old school on you today. We don't do this very often, so if today's your very first time at City Spring Church, uh, it's not always like this, and so if you don't like it, come back next week, or actually two weeks from now, because next week we're doing a wedding, and uh, come back in two weeks, and it'll be different, I promise. Uh, I'm going to make a little bit of space here for me. The uh, Grab yourself a Bible, your phone, or whatever you want to do, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, and as you're doing that, a couple of things... Uh, uh, here at City Spring, we've been trying to kind of on-ramp and allow more people to get involved and to get plugged in. And one of the things that we found in along the process is that we have lots of people who have lots of questions about what it looks like to be a part of City Spring. We have people who've like come here because they've heard about what we're doing in the community. We've had people here who have been invited by friends. And then uh, as a result of that, there's like questions like, what's it mean to be a part of this church? And some church traditions have membership. And what does that look like? And how do, like, do we have membership here? And so we've, we've kind of created a, a, a crash course, if you will, of all of the, basically we try to answer a bunch of questions for you as well as give you an opportunity to, to make a decision about you know, whether or not you wanted to be a part of City Spring. Uh, and so we created a thing that we call City Spring 101. And the way it will work is the first Sunday of every month, there'll be a 101. Um, and so there's going to be one today following service, and it'll be out these doors and to the left you'll go into the cafeteria, and it takes about 30 to 35 minutes, and we'll run through some of the stuff in there. We're not in any hurry, but it doesn't take us very long, so um, we'd love for you to join us for City Spring 101. If you've never been to it, you've been coming here for a long time, and you're like, oh yeah, I you know, I consider this my home church, and if you've never been to 101, go to it, uh, and we would love for to kind of give you a chance to hear what's going on, especially if you invite a friend. As many of you guys invite friends, and then you want to have a friend go do it, you should probably know what they're doing. Um, so anyways, Matthew chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. Now we started a series uh, a couple weeks ago, and the, the conversation that we kind of started at the beginning of the series is what would it look like if we pursued holiness? Now holiness is like this big word that sometimes has lots of baggage that gets jumped in on it, and uh, people hear that and it seems intimidating, and, and so we've kind of been walking through what does it really look like to kind of pursue holiness, and we've kind of decided that holiness is in, in, in its simplest form is just pursuing God. It's not pursuing perfection, but it's actually pursuing God and trying to pursue what it is that it would look like to live for God and live with you know, Him kind of being a part of the conversation of what it looks like for you to be living your life. And we've looked at you know, each little decision that you make uh, is your pursuit of holiness. And really, you pursue holiness is like one decision at a time. It's not like you blink and all of a sudden you've achieved some sort of great holy perfection or whatever, but it's just one decision at a time. And... Um, so this is kind of the, this, the conversation that we're having about holiness. And today, uh, I, I want to kind of give you a little bit of a, 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 re, a recap of where, what the, the text is. And so uh, we are jumping into this series, but this series drops right into the Christian tradition of what is called Lent. Did anybody in here grow up in a church that maybe participated in Lent or had a Lent you know, kind of thing? Yeah, some of you did. Like church has kind of like, if you don't know anything about it, it's okay. Like don't freak out. Be like, oh man, I'm, I don't know what's going on with my faith. Because uh, some churches have a huge tradition in following the Lent kind of uh, cycle. And then other people have no clue what it is. And when I say Lent cycle, you automatically probably jump to like your dryer. And you're thinking, 
we have a cycle on our dryer and there's Lent. Is that what he's talking about? No, this is a period of time that leads up to Easter's. Now, Christians have two kind of major uh, celebrations in their calendar. And every year there's like a rhythm, a routine that reminds them of what it looks like to kind of, uh, what you know, basically gives them these big like jolts of remembering uh, of what God is up to. There's a book in the Bible called Deuteronomy that I like to say is the remember book. One whole book in the Bible, the Old Testament, is kind of written to remind people who God is and what he's done and what he's going to do and the promises that he has for them. And uh, that whole book uh, has said, and of course, kind of this idea of remembering and cyclical rem- uh, remembrances. And so every year there's a, a big celebration in the Christian calendar called Christmas. It celebrates the, the arrival of Jesus. And leading up to that, you have the, the, the Advent season. Then Easter is the other big one. Uh, for some people, like those are the only two times you come all year. You know, Christmas and Easter; those are your two big ones. You're like, I come and I hear the same sermon every year. Uh, that's kind of boring. That's because you come those two days, and you're going to hear probably one of those two sermons. Uh, now, leading up to Easter, there's a forty period, a forty day period of time called Lent. Now, Lent is that forty days leading up to it, and the way it kind of works historically is they don't count Sundays, so they count backwards from Easter. 40 days skipping Sundays because Sundays are like a little mini Easter celebration. We gather every Sunday to remember like the one Sunday uh, that is the big one that is known as Easter. And so that's the period of Lent. Now we'd fall right into the middle of this. And uh, as we talk about cycles and we talk about rhythms, it's important for us to think about God wants to put inside of our, our lives rhythms, reminders about who he is and what he's up to. Every Sunday is a part of that rhythm, but then there's this Lent kind of period. And uh, in the Hebrew tradition, there would be an every, sat- uh, every Sabbath gathering. It actually wasn't on Sundays. And every Sabbath, they would gather together, and there'd be this reading in the, in the gathering, the synagogue is what it was called. And as they would gather, there'd be a reading. It was a prescribed reading. And every at the time of Jesus... Most scholars believe or agree that there was a, a cycle even in the readings of the texts. And every three years, over that three-year period, the, uh, the synagogue would be in step or in sync with all the other reading, all the other synagogues around. And they would read the same passage on that same week. And they would go through every three years, they'd get through the whole first five books of the Bible. And so there was like this kind of cycle even built in to the early Jewish traditions. Now, we fall in, we have our own cycles, we have our own rhythms and all this stuff, and uh, we hear about Jesus. Now, when we hear about Lent, Lent has like this celebration of leading up to Jesus' ministry. Like there's the identification of Lent where the the 40-day period leading up to Easter has kind of historically been connected to Jesus' time before he starts his ministry. Now, you guys, like there's a lot of history here, Matt. I'm already bored. Uh, and so here's the chase. Here's what it all gets down to. The 40-day the period leading up to Easter that Jesus uh, goes in, uh, it connects to this time that Jesus uh, had in his lifestyle or life cycle or whatever. And that was shortly after he was baptized. He went off into the wilderness before he ever did uh, any of his official ministry. He goes off into the wilderness for 40 days. In that 40 days, he has this fasting period, and he has a, a time of trial. And I mean, if you imagine going off into the desert for 40 days without your RV, 
you can imagine how much fun that would be. This is what Jesus goes off and does. And so what we did last week is we looked at the first temptation of that time. Now, Jesus is tempted three times during this 40 days that the, that the, that the writers of the gospel tell us about. And so last week we looked at the first temptation. Uh, today we're going to look at the second one. So what we're going to do is this, this passage or this kind of narrative is shared with us two times in the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the four gospels. It's shared two times. It's shared in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, and we're just going to read a little bit of this. And when I say this is a little bit more of like a Bible study, we're going to, we're going to be doing some Bible study today. You ready? You guys ready? Got your Bible? You ready to roll? Thumb to it. You ready to roll? Here we go. Okay, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 says this. I even brought my Bible. No iPad today, guys. This is, this is getting serious, you know. All right. Now, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was Hungry, as you are after 40 days. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus said, It is written that people do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now that was last week's sermon. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Then Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, this text, as we dive into it, has this kind of quick kind of Bouncing around like Satan takes or the devil takes uh, Jesus you know, and first shows him some stones and says, I know you're hungry. Why don't you turn some of these stones into some bread so that you can eat? I mean, this quick gratification. If you're really the son of God, I know you have some powers. You're going to be performing some miracles. I mean, I know you have some abilities. There's no like wine into, or water into wine yet, but it, I'm sure Satan knows that some things are coming. And here he takes him to the temple. And stands him at the highest point and shows him, you know, all this stuff. But then as he looks down, he says, throw yourself down from here. And then something that's really ironic to me about the whole thing is that Satan quotes Scripture. Like, takes Bible. Like, do you remember how we talked about, the, like, the, the cyclical, you know, every week there's a passage? Something I didn't share with you is at this time, around the time of Jesus... People actually had the first five books of the Bible memorized. Like, you go to grade school, like, we go and we learn, like, you know, math, and we, you know, we start out with your colors because we're a little slow, you know, and then we work our way up, and, you know, like, we've got all these other subjects. In Jesus' culture, the, the law, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, that's what was taught, and you were taught how to memorize them. And there was, like, they were broken down into little portions, which they called parshas, and you would memorize all this stuff. And so, like, it was, it's not like where some of us are like, we're trying to think, I think that's in the Bible somewhere, and we're like Googling it, trying to figure out where that's at. Like usually, conversations could be started, and people could just start with a little bit of a phrase of the passage, and people could generally finish it. They knew what it was. Like sometimes you'll see people like uh, in different, if you read some historical stuff or whatever, someone will start a passage and they don't ever finish it, and you're thinking, oh dear goodness, he must not think that other stuff's important. But no, he'd usually just quote a little bit of it just to kind of get your wheels turning so you'd know where he was at, and then he would just assume you know the rest of the passage. Like uh, in, in Christian tradition, sometimes we like to think that maybe Satan doesn't, we have like secrets from him. 
He's not going to be able to know. And I think there might be some things that maybe have been veiled from him. He doesn't know entirely. Uh, But one thing that is true is that Satan does know what's in the Word of God and the Bible. He knows the promises. He knows what's been given. He knows the prophecies. He knows all of the stuff. And so when he comes to Jesus there in that moment and says, Hey, the texts say, you know, the, the, the traditions say that if you're the Son of God, you throw yourself down, that God will protect you. He's not going to let anything happen to you. No, you know, you, you won't be hurt at all. Throw yourself down. And what Satan's really showing him is, or asking him is, can you show me for real? Like, are you really who you say you are? I mean, that's really the temptation. Are you really who you say you are? Are you really with who you say you're with? You ever had a moment in your faith where you wondered, is God really, is, really, is he really here? Is he paying attention? Does he know what's going on in my life? I don't know what your week looked like. I mean, you might have had a fantastic week, and it's easy for you to say, man, God, I've got God's favor in my life right now. Things are going so great. Maybe you had a terrible week, like at our house, the plague hit. I mean, it was like maybe the bubonic plague. I'm not real sure. I mean, it was bad. I mean, we're talking vomiting and all the, all the stuff you just don't want to even think about, and you shouldn't say in church. Like, there's, I do have lines. I don't talk about that. I mean, it was bad news bears at our house. You know, it was a bad week. And you're sitting there thinking, Lord, please heal us. Or you're thinking to yourself, Lord, please help my two-year-old figure out how to throw up in the trash can and quit running. Like Bronx, little dude, I should, I've already crossed the line, so I'm just going to tell you a funny story. Uh, Bronx, he's my little guy, he's two and a half. He's been sick, and he freaks out when he starts to throw up. And so when his natural reaction we've learned this week is that when he throws up, he runs. Like he's going to outrun it or something. Now, I know you think that's awesome, but it's not. Because in your house, it's a whole, I mean, a carpet cleaner was one of the best investments we ever made in our family. Uh, you know, he just takes off running and you have this nasty mess, you know. Like, if you ever had one of those weeks, you're like, dear goodness, is the Lord, I mean, does the, is the Lord even with me? <laughs> Please, Lord, heal us. Bring peace. Now, Satan comes to, to Jesus, gives him this temptation, quote scripture to Jesus, which would have been really easy to say, you know what, you're kind of right. You're kind of right. Now, Jesus gives a response. Let's check that out. Uh, Jesus, in verse 7, he answered him and said, It is also written. Another way of saying, you know, I also know a little bit about what God has said and what's been passed along to us. It says, also written, Do not put the Lord, your God, to the test. Now, I grew up in a... a, I've talked about this a lot, but like I grew up in in a family environment where my mom had us in church every single time the church doors were open. Like I, uh, I remember as a kid, I had to like leave basketball practice in high school early to go to Thursday night church. Uh, we didn't do it on Wednesday nights. We did it Thursday nights in the church I grew up in. You know, we'd have to, I was at church. We had prayer meetings and we'd be at church for prayer meetings. And as a, as a kid, I mean, that was brutal. Uh, I remember just thinking, oh my goodness, what am I, you know, as a kid, you, you know how it is. That's why we have kids ministry, because it actually engages your kids where they are. Prayer meeting was not engaging me as a, as a middle school student, you know. And so uh, I grew up in, a, in that. It's my mom and my dad was the other end of the spectrum where he would stay home, and I, we'd come home, and I'm not even sure if he enjoyed half the stuff that he did when he had his free time on Sunday mornings. We'd come home, and he'd be like watching WWF or something, you know, and I'm sure he was like, oh, they're home, you know, and we're there to like mess up the rest of his morning or something, but... Uh, 
So I grew up in this polarizing kind of church experience. But one of the things that was always told to us, and my dad would even like throw this at us every once in a while, was like, you should not put God to the test. I mean, it was a lesson that was kind of given to us, but I was never really entirely sure until I even got older what, they even, what that even meant. Because, you know, as a student, tests always equal like paper and pen and, you know, there's a, a quiz or something. And I'm like, why would I pop, like throw a pop quiz at God? You know, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And this text, this is where a lot of the conversation kind of comes up. But Jesus says that we should not put God to the test. Now, what does that even mean? How do we test God? Because a lot of us would even say, I believe that God knows way more than me. I mean, he's God. I believe that God, you know, there's, there's no reason to test him. He knows all things and, you know, he's good and, you know, all the little things you, you know and you believe about God. So why would I ever test him? Now, Here's where the Bible study part comes in. Uh, last week, I, I taught you a little bit about how to use your Bible a little bit. And every once in a while, you'll see things pop up when you're reading your Bible. And so uh, I want to kind of, one of the things I think is kind of an important part of being a follower of God is actually reading your Bible and seeing what's in there for yourself. Because lots of times you'll think you know what it's in there. I've had lots of debates with people who are convinced the Bible says something and it's not really in there. Or they think it means something, but it doesn't really mean what they think it means. And so today I want to give you another little old-fashioned Bible school lesson here. Now, in my Bible, after Jesus says, uh, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test, my Bible has a little letter there. Do you guys have a little letter there? If you're using the U version thing, it has like these three little dots. I forget what that's called, but it's like a, you know, it's a sign. There's something there. If you click it in your little digital Bible, it'll pop up a text. You guys see that? Yeah, a collective head nod is helpful to me. Thank you. Um, and so in my Bible, we've got that little thing there. Now, it's referencing something here. It's referencing Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it says 6, verse 16. Now, some of you guys are way ahead of me, and you've already, I can see Bible. You're flipping back to Deuteronomy 6, 16. Jesus is saying, hey, this, or basically the, the, the writers of the text are telling us this is important, and they're showing us what is he referring to, what is Jesus referring to. Now, if you want to, you can see what Satan was referring to there with the letter E as talks about there's a Psalms 91, 11, and 12. That's what, that's what he was referring to. So it is actually in the text. But here you have Deuteronomy 6, 16. So let's just take a little flip back here and see what is happening here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, the uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you've gotten there, you can see that there's a little heading there at the beginning of the chapter. It says, Love the Lord your God. That's what this is all about. That's my son making all the noise. Thank you very much, Bronx. Uh, and he says, uh, we're going to jump in in verse 4. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, is one of the most famous passages in all of the Hebrew tradition. And here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That right there is a part of one of the most famous Hebrew prayers called the Shema, and it's a prayer that they pray multiple times a day. And it continues on. It says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Talk to them about when you talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols to your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. 
When the Lord your God brings you to the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to give to you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of things that you did not provide, wells you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves and blah, blah, blah. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt in this land. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you, for... The Lord, your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his, his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord, your God, to the test, as you did in Massah, or Massa. So you get a little bit of a, here's what Jesus is referring to. He jumps right into the center of one of the most famous passages in, in his tradition, and it ends there with, well, it doesn't really end there, but we end there. And he says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, I have a friend who uh, is really big into the Jewish tradition stuff. And uh, he has a friend named Kent who went over and studied in Jerusalem and wanted to learn as much as he could about the Hebrew text and about the, the uh, Christian tradition. And there in this school that he was in, uh, he had a rabbi teacher, and a rabbi is a Jewish teacher, and he was in some Old Testament classes, and they had this exercise that was, that was kind of given to them, and he gave them a passage of the text, and he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go home tonight, read this passage, and I want you to write out as many questions as you can think of that pertain to this text. So they all go home, and they read this text, and they read this thing up, and then at the end of uh, that night, or the, the next day, they come in, and you know, they've got a few questions that they, you know, they raise their hands. And for the most part, everybody in the class had like one or two or three of the same questions. And they got a chance to share them. And the rabbi froze when they were all done. And he looked at all of them and he said, is that all? And the people in the class were like, what do you mean, is that all? Like, That's all the questions you can come up with about this? And then he begins to proceed and list off so many more questions and questions that stem from the questions that he asks and literally just inundates them with for the next multiple minutes of all the extra questions. And he just stops after listing off all these extra questions that he can come from these little, this short little passages that he's given them. And he just says, central to the art of following and pursuing God is that understanding that you'll have many questions if you're going to pursue following God, if you're going to pursue holiness, it starts with asking great questions. And so if you were to read the text, lots of times we think we're looking for answers. But what you need to feel released to do is to ask great questions. Because if you've ever been captivated by a great question, what does it do? It causes you to think about it. It causes you to kind of want to know the answer to that question, which then, if you ever had one of those moments, you find the answer to that question, and what's it do? Sometimes it opens up a whole other list of questions, doesn't it? So as we read this little passage that I just read to you in, Exodus, or in, in uh, Deuteronomy, we get there at the end of that passage in the text that Jesus is referring to, which Jesus left off a little bit of it there. Did you catch that? If you were to compare the two, Jesus, when tempted... Tell Satan, do not put the Lord your God to the test, right? But then in this passage, which it's referring to, so Jesus left off some of it, what does it say? 
Do not put the Lord your God to the test like you did at Messiah. Which should quickly, in your head, think, what is Messiah? Or maybe you know exactly what it is because you've got it memorized, right? Huh, is anybody curious? What is, what is he referring to? What is, yeah, yeah. I appreciate the head nods. Yes, yeah, yeah. So let's figure it out. Now, on your Bible, does it have any, does it give you any hints? I mean, you could go to Google if you need to and figure out what in the world are they talking about. But my Bible uh, has a little bit of a hint to us um, in the sense that it says uh, that it's in Exodus chapter 17. Now, I have found that not every Bible has a little subscript there. Does, does anybody here have a subscript there? No? I have a special, special resource here. So Exodus chapter 17, let's flip there. I told you this was going to be a little bit of a Bible study for you today. For those of you who do not like this stuff, I'm sorry. Next week, I'll, I won't bore you. Exodus chapter 17 has a heading, and it says, Water from the Rock. Now, if you grew up in the church, you might have a hint as to what this is about. But let's just figure it out. Let's just read this and figure out what's happening in this text. Um, lots of reading here. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses, who was their leader, and said, Give us water to drink. That sounds like my kids in the morning. Need a sippy, Daddy. Uh, so Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses, and they said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out to the front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take, with, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. It's a special staff. Like God used this staff to kind of confirm for Moses that he was going to send him back to Egypt. Uh, there was some cool stuff that happens in the beginning of the story of Moses where God tells Moses to drop his staff, and this staff becomes a snake before him, which would freak me out straight out. I mean, I've been done. Uh, I don't like snakes at all. And the snake slivering around there, and then God tells him to pick up the snake by the tail, to which I would have said, nope, I'm good. And he picks up the staff and it turns back, or the snake, and it pick, turns back into a staff. This staff was there when the Red Sea parted. If you've never heard of that story, that's a fantastic uh, part of the remembering of what God has done for his people. And that staff, when it, he took it with him into the water, the Red Sea had parted. I mean, this is uh, a moment God says, remember Moses. I mean, Moses is even complaining a little bit. I mean, these people are going to stone me, God. And he's telling Moses, remember that staff, which I'm sure would have flashed all sorts of thoughts in his head right then and there of all of the other things that God has done with this staff. So he's reminding Moses here, take that staff and go. Verse 6, and I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. 
So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called that place Massah and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, and get this, is the Lord among us or not? The temptation that is brought there to Jesus on top of the temple. It's a temptation of, is, do you really believe? I mean, is your faith big enough that you believe that God would do anything for you? I mean, do you believe that God is with you? I mean, and, and what God, or what Jesus is there doing, you know, Satan is there with him, and he says, hey, I want you to throw yourself off of this cliff. What Satan is asking him is, do you have enough faith? I mean, do you have enough faith? That's kind of like calling it in the test. Now, you've had those moments where someone will say, you know, big faith, you know, it requires big action. And, you know, this is how people get people to do some stupid stuff. Like, if you believe God loves you, you will drink this Kool-Aid, you know? I mean, there's all sorts of moments when people use this, like, question and they want to, like, get you to do something. This is how you motivate terrorists to fly planes in the sides of buildings. Because if you do believe that God is big enough, do you have enough faith? Do you, I mean, will you do anything for this guy? If you believe that God is with you, you'll throw yourself down off of this just to prove a point. Now, in the world of Christianity and faith, like it's, it's kind of, a, the deal is kind of like you want to be someone who has faith, Right? Like, you want to be somebody who can, like, show other people how big your faith is. Look at the risk that I was willing to take, and look how God came through in a big way. Now, I'm not saying that God will never call you to do something crazy. I'm not saying that he'll never say, hey, you know, I need you to do something that's going to feel a little uncomfortable. I'm not saying that he's not going to place a challenge in your life that's going to, you know, really cause you to come to terms with how much faith you truly have in God. Like in a personal example, like when we, my wife and I were talking about coming to this community to be a part of this church, one of the, the big questions that I had to wrestle with was like, is, would it be okay if I don't, if like, like this thing doesn't just blow up all of a sudden? Because to be quite honest with you, I'd always been a part of churches that like, you go there and you'd have some resources and you do a little things and a few years later, it was like huge. I mean, things just kind of took off. Would it be okay if, you know, we went someplace and it didn't just blow up all of a sudden overnight? And I don't mean blow up in a bad way. I mean, like, in a good way. You're like, all of a sudden there's people drove it in. Like, and I remember thinking to myself, if I believe God's called me to do this, I'm gonna have, could I be okay if this thing stays 100 people for the rest of the time that I'm ever there? Which I hope it does, and I hope we reach lots of people. I hope we change our community and all that stuff. But I remember thinking to myself, I have to wrestle with what's it look like? What's faith look like for me? And it felt like a huge, risky step to step out and to take on this endeavor. For you, I believe God's probably had moments in your life where you had to wonder, is, is, this, is God really with me? Is God really going to provide for me? And there's like those moments when you like want to show everybody how big your faith is. 
you, know, you, you have those challenges that are thrown out to you or someone like wants to call into question how much faith you really have. Will God do something miraculous on your behalf? And you're like, oh, yes, I believe he will. And so, you're, you know, you make, you know, maybe you make a crazy decision. I mean, I know of, I've known of people who've made like terrible, terrible, terrible financial decisions in the name of faith. So you just kind of believed that maybe God would just do something for me. I'm going to make this decision to show everybody how much faith I have. She dive off the diving board and do something crazy. And maybe it wasn't God at all that was calling you to do it, but you were just trying to show everybody how much faith you had. When tempted in this moment to do this big, miraculous faith leap, Jesus pulls out this passage It refers back to another passage in which these people were grumbling and complaining about God's provision and they were wondering whether or not God was with them. And they were grumbling because they didn't see the signs they thought they should have seen if what they thought, you know, they thought God was with them. And so if if God is really with us, we would have this and this and this. We wouldn't be hungry. We wouldn't be thirsty. We wouldn't be doing this. Clearly, the Lord is lost. And that's the, the grumbling and complaining that they get. And Moses says, you know, goes out and shows them, yes, the Lord is here with us. Now, I don't know... I don't know everything about your story or what your experience has been, but I want to talk just for a moment as I wrap this thing up, and we might get out of here early if I could do this well. Uh, I want to just for a moment allow you to feel free because when you go to pursue God, sometimes, especially when you start thinking about holiness, sometimes you can quickly fall into the trap that you have to be proving your faith over and over and over by having these great acts that show your faith. And what I think this text is showing us is like when you have faith that God is with you, you don't need to prove anything because God will prove it himself. And if you want to choose to grumble and complain, I believe that God will do whatever it takes in that moment to draw you near to Him. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture comes from James 4, when it says that if you will draw near to God, He will draw near to you. The pursuit of holiness is not just your pursuit of God, but I believe God is pursuing you and me. He wants to, he's pursuing us. That's why he sends his son in his pursuit to connect with us, to get the message across. And so when you feel this huge urge that you have to prove and prove and prove, sometimes I think it's, it'd be better for us just to relax and rest and just trust and trust and trust because really that's a better word sometimes for faith than what comes with all the other stuff that we think of when we use the word faith. Can you trust God? Can you trust him? 
Can you trust when you're thirsty that he knows that you're thirsty and that perhaps he knows where water is and he'll bring it at the right time? Sometimes he, he'll, you know, there'll be a staff involved and water will come flying forth just to kind of get you to probably to, just to shut up. But he wants to draw you near to him. The pursuit of holiness is just that, drawing closer to God. And when you feel that need, that urge, then maybe I should go and do something bold so that God will then in turn respond on my behalf. Maybe the question you should ask yourself, is God calling me to do this or am I doing this to get God to move? Now, I know this is tricky for some of our theologies and things. You're thinking, well, maybe, you know, sometimes God does ask me to do something and he's going to do something big and kind, but sometimes I think we want to be God. And in the relationship, we try to dictate to him, so we do something like we throw ourselves out in some sort of crazy flyer, hoping that God will come through. And in that situation, we're trying to force his hand to move on our behalf rather than really pursuing what it is that he wants for us. Does this make sense? So in this idea of how do you pursue holiness, perhaps you need to feel free to just trust God rather than prove anything. My closing little story. Uh, I have a friend, I've talked about him before. Uh, he's an atheist and he, we have lots of great conversations. And one of the things that I've, I used to feel a, a kind of a burden, especially as a pastor, I mean, I'm supposed to be able to like articulate things really well and be able to like prove to him. I mean, how many guys, I mean, how many pastors have friends that are atheists that stay that way? I mean, wouldn't, aren't I supposed to be able to convince to him, you know, convince him of God's presence and all of this different stuff? You know, and so I, I've carried with me this little bit of weight, like I need to be able to prove to him you know, if I'm a good Christian, I can prove to him that God is real. And if I'm a good Christian, I should be able to prove to him. And it's what it's kind of created over time was a little bit of a burden that I started to carry. Being able to prove God's existence. And then he had a child. I had nothing to do with that, by the way. And what I've noticed is in him having a kid he's starting to open up to maybe some different understandings. His heart has gotten softened. Now, I'm not, he hasn't come to faith. He hasn't totally changed his beliefs or anything like that. But what I've noticed is that God has been pursuing him and he's been giving him just little bits that he knows that he needs at just the right time. And maybe, 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 I don't know. Maybe a kid is exactly what God knew. That he would gift him with his child and watch him learn what it means to be a father. And maybe, maybe that's the next step. And I couldn't do anything with that. I couldn't prove anything to him. And nothing I was ever going to do is probably going to make any difference in his life. But I do believe God's pursuing him. I don't need to prove anything. Just be free to live my faith in front of him. And maybe, maybe, maybe God will be at work in his life. So may you feel free so remember, the gospel was, the word means good news. 
In what areas of your faith are you carrying around something with you that doesn't feel like good news? It feels like a burden that you need to prove. May you feel free, and in the process, may you become more and more alive in your pursuit of God. And as you become more and more alive, maybe it will change your world. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for just this uh, reminder. Thank you for coming to carry the burden for us. And thank you for the reminders that we see in scriptures that you are with us. And we have no burden to prove anything, but we have been gifted the opportunity to live in connection with you. So Lord, as we leave this space today and we take this kind of word with us this next week, Lord, may we feel free. And may that freedom help our heart beat just a little bit stronger. And may we come more and more alive as we continue to pursue you in this big endeavor that sometimes feels a little bit like eating an elephant. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.